Morning, everybody. Good to see you. Everybody on live stream, glad you can join us. Now, Sarah was due to be speaking to us today, continuing in the second part of our series on Esther. But um, she's uh, had COVID. I had a couple of weeks. I'm better now. But she's still struggling post-COVID with some of the challenges with that. So she's not very well. And I'll just keep talking until the sound settles. And then when we're ready. So what I'm going to speak on this morning is not on Esther because I haven't had the time to prepare Sarah's talk. Uh, and Sarah's prepared a talk anyway, so I wouldn't want to do that. But I'm going to do a complimentary message. And I'm going to speak about women in leadership. Yes, now as a church, we, we believe unapologetically that women can have any place and role uh, and function in leadership at the highest level. And as New Wine Cymru, which is a network I have the great privilege to, to lead of, uh, I think it's around about 200 churches across Wales from 22 denominations, and again, we have this high value that there is no ceiling on a role that women can play in the church. Now, of course, people would think that even to consider that in today's world would be odd, because after all, we've got a female prime minister, we've had three now, and we've got various amazing leaders with fantastic responsibilities over the year. We think of uh, the Angela Merkel and the uh, EU president and Queen Elizabeth, amazing. We've just been celebrating her life recently, haven't we? So women in leadership is a common thing now within the world that we live in. Um, it hasn't always been like that. It's been a space dominated by men mostly, but we're, we're seeing the tide turn a little. But in the church, the leadership space is still predominantly dominated by men. And some Christians feel torn about this, and they feel challenged about it. And many Christians believe in women in leadership, think women should be able to lead, but they see some challenges in Scripture that cause them to have a conflict. And there are some challenges within Scripture when you read it at face value, which, which causes you to think, Oh, well, what's all that about? So let's have a look at one of those, probably the most famous challenging scripture regarding women in leadership. And it's written from Paul, who was one of the, an apostle in the New Testament church. He wrote many, many letters to the church. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, probably one of the most challenging passages regarding women in leadership in the New Testament. Let women learn in silence with full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, providing she continues in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Well, that is a bit of a mind-bending scripture, isn't it, in anybody's world? But actually, this is a classic example of how we can't just take a verse from a book or a letter that has been written 2,000 years ago into a 2,000-year context, into a 2,000-year audience, into a 2,000-year-ago situation, and take it on face value and apply it to our current day without any thought at all. After all, if we just took it on face value... 
Women could only be saved through bearing children, providing that they prayed and lived a godly life. Now, what we have to understand when reading the New Testament letters that the New Testament writers wrote to the church, what we have to understand is that they were letters. Uh, When you read your Bible, you often see the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians or the epistle of Peter. Now, the word epistle means letter. They are not books as we would see them today. So when Paul wrote his epistles, his letter, he wasn't writing theological books. So if I wanted to write a a theology in what I believed, I would write a book. But if I was writing, as I did many letters to Sarah when we were courting, and I was in Bible college and she was studying Swansea University, I didn't write her a book on what I believed. I wrote her a letter. And a letter spoke into the certain conversations that were ongoing and the circumstances of our life. And uh, she actually, this is the difference, fundamental difference between men and women, by the way. Sarah kept all my letters. (laughs) I don't know where the hundreds of letters, she wrote more letters to me. I don't know where they are. I don't know, they've just vanished. But if you were to read the letters I wrote to Sarah or Sarah wrote to me, what you would get is one side of the conversation just one side. You wouldn't have all of the backstory that actually made sense of the, sometimes the complex conversations that we were having. And I've walked into a telephone conversation that Sarah might be having on the phone many, many, many times. And I've listened to Sarah saying something, and I'm saying, what did you say that for? And until she, because I jumped to a conclusion, until, could you bring me my water, Chloe? I really appreciate that. Until she has actually spoken explained the reason why she made the call, the reason why she made the comment, the backstory in the many conversations, and oh, now I get it, because I jumped to a wrong conclusion, and I'm sure many of you have done the same in your life, and sometimes you can pick up an email and jump to the same conclusion, unless you've seen the email trail. So we have to remember, first of all, whenever you're reading the New Testament letters, Remember, they are letters, not books self-contained in their own right. And therefore, we're only seeing one side of the story, and so we need to apply ourselves into a little bit of study to understand something in context that we may appropriate and apply it appropriately. Let me give you an example. My old eldest daughter, Rachel, now lives in London. She's hoping to come home and spend a few days with her. Now, when she was a little girl, uh, we had a fire in the room, gas fire, and you could switch it on, or or it might have been a bar fire, I can't remember. We had a fire in the room, and I would say to her, Rachel, little girl, don't touch the fire. Don't touch the fire. Now, can you imagine me going out? She's visiting us now for a couple of days, and me and Sarah going out, and we come back, and it's in the middle of winter, And I come back, and there she is perishing cold in the living room because it's the middle of winter and it's Wales. And I said, Rachel, why didn't you put the fire on? And she says, Dad, you told me that I shouldn't touch the fire. (sighs) Yes, Rachel, but that was a particular context. You were three years old, and to touch the fire would be dangerous. I don't expect you not to touch the fire now, 
But the lesson you, we all carry through from that example is stay safe. Whether you're a child or an older person, stay safe. But go ahead and touch the fire. So what you get then is a contextual understanding of the reason I gave that particular instruction. Am I, are you with me? And this is how we have to read the New Testament letters. Because if we just pick verses at random, it can lead us in all directions of thought that the writer of the apostles never actually meant. Another one, I'll just give you a few quick examples. Another one is, avoid all appearances of evil. I've had this quoted to me many, many times. I remember sitting with one elderly gentleman many, many years ago who actually said he wouldn't watch television because there's a verse in the Bible that says, you know, um, do not associate with the things of the world. And he says, well, it's the television is a form of entertainment that people in the world use. And for him, it was an appearance of evil. And he actually said to me, and made me laugh a little, he said, actually, I don't watch television, Julian, except for Westerns. <laughs> and <that's, laughs> I said, well, why Westerns? He says, because I don't watch it for the plot, but for the scenery. <laughs> because we can take pleasure in God's creation, but we can't take pleasure in the plot. <laughs> because he wanted to avoid all appearance of evil. But when you actually look at that text in Thessalonians, it says, uh, uh, despise not prophecy. Test all, actually, it says, despise not prophecy, test all things, hold on to the good, avoid all appearance of evil. So if you just took it on its own and not in the context, you would come up with a conclusion that Paul never, no, I wasn't meaning that. I mean, Jesus didn't avoid all appearances of evil. That's, that's what put him on the cross. People said, one of the things they said, you're a, you're a friend of tax collectors, sinners, you're a, you're a drunkard and a glutton because he was going to their parties. So we have to we have to do a bit of digging and a bit of thought. So when we're looking at New Testament letters, we have to understand they're written to a particular situation. They're written to a, spe a specific people group. They're not written to you. They're given to you in God's wisdom that we can learn, but they're not written to you. And the correct for correct interpretation, context is everything. Context, context, context to understand it. And you can only understand anybody's conversation if you have the context. There's a number of contexts that we have to take into account. Situational context. Why did Paul write this letter? What was he specifically addressing? Every letter he wrote was not to you and me, it was to a particular people group, to the church of Corinth, to the church of Rome, to the church of Ephesus. There was something going on, to the church of Galatia. Now we can learn a lot from them, but there was a particular reason why he wrote. And then, not just taking a verse, but looking at the context of the whole book. Why did he write the whole book, the whole letter, rather than just one or two sentences from the letter? The con also, we have to look in the context of the life of Jesus and his teaching, because these were apostles of Jesus Christ. They were applying the teachings and the life of Jesus into a complex Roman-Grecian world. They were taking the Jesus life that he modeled out 
in Israel and then applying his teachings to a totally different culture. What was the context? And so we have to understand the context of Jesus' life because that's what they were, um, that, that was informing their teachings and their writings. And then we have to look at it in the context of the whole Bible because Jesus Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole of the scriptures. So what is the context of the whole Bible? So I'm going to come back to that challenging scripture in a few moments at the end of my talk, and we'll look at it, uh, how to read the scriptures correctly and how to read them unhelpfully. But firstly, I'm going to look at the context of the whole Bible, because if we don't understand the whole context, we don't end up in the right place. So what is the context of the whole Bible concerning women, rulership, and leadership? Well, let's have a look at the the primary context of the Scriptures. It's found in Genesis. It's like the opening line or a scene of a play that is going to set the whole scene for the rest of the plot, the big story. And it says in Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Note that. God made mankind in his image that he may what? It's on there in the text. Read, shout out to me. Rule. The purpose that you have been made in the image of God is that you may rule. Now, many people say, what is it? Why did God make mankind? What is it to be made in his image? And people say, oh, to be made in the image of God is that we've got an intellect and a brain to think. And yes, God thinks, and so that's why we think. And he's a relational, and so yes, we're relational. He's emotional, so we're emotional. He's creative, so we're creative. He has, he's a moral being, so we have a, a morality and a conscience. He's a free-willed being, so we have free will. All those, all those are true that they reflect the image of God. But in the opening statements about the reason why God made humanity and put people on the planet and distinguished them from other creation and animals, the thing that he leans out of and his opening statement that defines what a human being is and what it is to reflect the image of God, it is that we have been made in his image to rule. Have you got that? And, if you, if, and it's, the, it's what makes you human, in other words. And if you can't rule, you are not exercising what it is to be human. And then he goes on to say, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and the creatures that move along the ground. So he created mankind in his image. In his image, he created them Male and female. Bingo. It's the opening context of the scriptures. This is the opening scene regarding humanity and why he got put human beings on the planet. And he made human beings in his image, male and female, to rule. So when women and men are made 
to exercise rulership, governance, authority. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he has chosen to bring heavenly rule onto earth through human beings, male and female. And Adam and Eve essentially were the first church. See, church isn't a building. It's not what we're doing. This is not church. Can I just say we're, we might think this is church? It's church, church gathered, but this, a meeting is not the church. The people who are under the rule of God are the church. And the church is a vehicle for the kingdom of God to come through the earth. So the, the, king, the church is not the kingdom, but it's the vehicle of God for the kingdom. And it's the people. It's always been the people. It's not a religious service. It's not a liturgy. It's not something we go to. It's the community of God in form of people. And we and people are God's vehicle for extending and bringing his kingdom. It's a delegated authority. So Adam and Eve were the first church. And it was after Adam and Eve sinned that it all went downhill and the rule of God wasn't ex executed through them, but now they were under the dominion of darkness or the rule, uh, dominion of Satan and their fallenness became, became the dominant feature and expression of their rulership. But rulership was never taken from them because if you stop ruling, you stop being human. Am I communicating? If you stop ruling, you stop being human. So the only way he could stop you ruling is to wipe you out or come up with a plan to start again in the kingdom of God. But, he, but the gifts of God are irreversible because they're without repentance. The gifts are without repentance. So he can't take away your capacity to rule because you'll be subhuman. You'll be like an animal. Am I communicating? So all went downhill after Adam and Eve sinned, but Jesus came to reverse the sin and the fallout and the dysfunctionality and bring us back unto the rule of God again so that God's pure and beautiful and healthy and wholesome rule that wasn't corrupt and destructive could flow through humanity. It's always been his plan. And so when Jesus came as a man, God who was a man, he says, change your mind, that's what the word repentance means, change your mind because the kingdom of God is at hand. And it was coming back through a man who his name is Jesus. And we speak, and we have a high value upon the divinity of Christ. High, high value. But let me tell you something about the humanity of Christ. Without the humanity of Christ, the kingdom of God can't come again through human beings because it's been given to human beings to rule on earth. That's the way God wired it up. Let us make man in our image, male and female, that they may rule on earth. Am I communicating? Good. So, the, through the body of Christ, the church, we advance the kingdom, we live it out, we prophetically declare it in how we live and through word. And God's rule and the way it looks through humans was delivered through Jesus. And it basically reflects what the rule of God would be like through Adam and Eve on the earth if they hadn't sinned. So let me just move on to this a bit more. Sometimes 
or some have thought that leadership is only male is because Adam was created first. Hmm. Let me go back to one thing again. Let me just say this. If women aren't allowed to rule, we're dehumanizing them. Because to be rule is a fundamental human thing. Now, some people think that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve is that the male is the ruler or Adam was the ruler of Eve because Adam came first. And it says it's not good for man to be alone, so I'll make a helper for him. And there's this thought that actually Adam's got the main job, he's got the main responsibility, but he can't do his own, so we'll make a little helper to fetch his slippers and, you know, tidy the house for him and cook his food so after he's been busy ruling and doing important things that uh, he can relax because he is looked after by his little helper. Now, here's the problem with that. The Hebrew word for helper is in the Hebrew ezer, um, and it's the same word for the Lord is my helper. And every time it refers to God as being the helper of humanity, who is stronger and greater and better, it uses the word Esa. And so when it says, I will provide a helper for him, it's exactly the same word. So in the context of the scripture, we would struggle to apply that as a secondary role of helping. But rather, it's somebody who is strong, powerful, the image of God, how much more strong and powerful and awesome can you get to come alongside so that you may do this together and get the job done. Here's some text. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, saved by the Lord. He is your shield and your Esa, your helper. Psalm, uh, oh God, you are my help, Esa, and my deliverer. Do not delay. I mean, the scriptures is full of them. So God made Adam and woman. The other thing is God made Adam and woman to show the nature of God, male and female, two and one. And uh, it's widely recognized amongst theologians and scholars that Adam, when he was created, was both male and female. He was an hermaphrodite, male and female. And that God took the female out of him when he took the rib. And that's in, in poetry form. It explains what God... And so, so you've got one, and now you've got two, and through marriage and the union, they become one, so they're one and two. And this is to reflect the nature of the image of God and the nature of image in God in man. Because let us remember, God is not one. God is one, but he's three. That's the nature. He's one, but out of his substance, there is three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three individuals, but mysteriously they're one. One in three. And Adam and Eve are made in his image. And then Adam, his male and female, is one. But actually, out of Adam, there's now another individual, but out of the same substance. So Adam named all the animals, and Eve was in Adam, by the way, when he named the animals. So Eve received the call to name the animals, not Adam alone, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And then, um, and then Eve was taken from Adam, and so we see two individuals reflecting the image of God, just like Jesus, who is, he has seen me, says Jesus, seen the Father, I and the Father are one. 
And, and, and when Adam and Eve come together in marital union, they're reflecting the unity of the image of God and the individuality of the Trinity. Am I communicating? It's absolute genius. So we can't say that just because Adam was created first that he is the dominant place. You just can't say that. There's nothing in the text that supports that. He was man and woman, one, and now there's two, and the two shall become one, just like the Trinity. So when Adam named the animals, which is a sign of rulership and authority, Eve was in Adam naming the animals. When Adam received the command to tend the garden and cultivate it for the care and the well-being of all creation, Eve was actually inside Adam receiving that call and responsibility. And what we have to understand by the nature and the context of how God works with humanity, there's a corporate identity and responsibility. So, so Corinthians says, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Where were you? When Adam sinned, or the Bible says we were in Adam, and that's why we are born sinners. When Abraham was blessed, it teaches how we were in Abraham, and we were blessed with Abraham, and now we receive it. We, we were a part of, we were in Abraham mysteriously, even though we weren't yet born. Where were you when Jesus Christ was crucified? It says we were placed in Christ. How can you be placed in Christ 2,000 years ago and when he was punished for your sins so you could be forgiven? You were because you were in Christ. And when he was raised from the dead, he says we were raised from the dead in Christ. See, we have a Western culture in our Western culture where we think of me, myself, I, and we can only see through the lens of personal personality. But God doesn't see persons alone. He sees corporate humanity as well as individuals. And so, so when Adam received the instruction to name the animals, Eve was there. When Adam re received instruction to tend the garden, Eve was there. And all this is poetry, by the way. And then Eve was taken from Adam to demonstrate the image of God and the Trinity. And in their union, they demonstrate both the Trinity and the union. Am I communicating? Making you think a little bit. But I want to put the context of how God has set the world up and human beings to function. Now, another reason why sometimes we think that men should rule over women is because it says... In Genesis chapter 3, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Can I just remind us that this is after the fall? This is when it's all gone wrong. This is not good. This is a pronouncement of the consequence of humanity rebelling against God when everything became dysfunctional. And the Hebrew text the force of the Hebrew text is this, your desire shall be for your husband. This is not some romantic, domestic, oh, bless. Now, give me a cuddle, will you? Let, let's, let's spend the evening in and watch Netflix. It's not, it's not this romantic thing that we import from our Western view. This is Eve saying, I, I desire to get back to what has been lost since the fall to, to be shoulder, shoulder to shoulder alongside Adam, ruling with you. 
And we know that this is the context because of the next verse. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall, but he shall rule over you. You want to be ruling with your husband? No, he's going to rule over you. And now we see a power struggle between the sexes. And that power struggle has been going on between the sexes for years and years. And who has been the dominant feature in this? Men. So, this is after the fall. And what is the context? The context is not about some romantic, lovely, cozy evening together or life together. It's about rulership. You're going to desire, you desire to be back alongside your husband, but he is going to dominate. He's going to rule over you. Now, what does that mean, rule over you? The con- again, con- if, if, I hope you get one thing out of this talk. It's context, context, context. The context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is about ruling in man's image. And so, God says to Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, male and female, that they may rule over the animals and every living thing and over creation. Rulership is over creation and animals, not over other human beings. And to, to exercise rulership over another human being is to subjugate them to the place of being an animal. It's to dehumanize them. That's why it's dehumanizing to make a slave, because you take away their free will. It's dehumanizing. And it's dehumanizing to actually forbid somebody to rule on the basis of their gender, ethnicity, or social background. That's a dehumanizing act, right? Because we were made in God's image. And, and, as, and you are made to rule. And to rob people of that is, what you, is to dehumanize them, and it's to relegate them to the status of an animal because our rulership is over animals. So here's the thing. Your desire will be for your husband to get back to that place of alongside rulership, but you will rule over, the, over them. The context is ruling over animals. It's not healthy. And that's what is a consequence of the fall. We lost a lot when we fell and sinned as a human race and rebelled against God and choose to rule in our own right run under the, rather than the good governance of God. To rule, for men to rule over women is not a good thing. But God promised through a woman that he will provide a human being who would be a liberator from the oppression of the Satan that deceived them in the garden. And he says, your seed to the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that head speaks of authority. Whenever you see head in the scripture, it speaks of authority. It's going to crush the authority, the, the abuse of authority that you're now under. And so the whole Bible now is pointing to a man coming, born of a woman, who is going to reverse everything, speaking to, God, to, to Adam and Eve in the garden, and reverse everything and bring it back to the original design of Eden. So the, so the plan of God can get back on track for humanity. 
A new human ruler would bring the rule of God back to people and they would rule again under the authority of God. And we see this in Jesus. And this was Jesus. And this, again, I'm going to repeat this. This is why Jesus came as a man. Fully God, but he had to come as a man to give the kingdom back to humankind. So we see the radical teaching of Jesus very quickly. The radical teaching of Jesus for all humans, including women. Very interesting that when that seed came into Mary and Mary gave birth to this human humanity, man, male, didn't get a look in. It was, a, it was conceived of the Holy Spirit and the new humanity came through a woman. Don't just devalue that. The woman of Samaria. Jesus speaks to this woman of Samaria who's... who's um, an individual, and she is the first person in the scriptures that he got a self-declaration that he was the Messiah. She says, when the Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. And Jesus says, to this woman, I am he. The disciples didn't get that. He'd been tracking around with them for years, and they didn't get that. It was the woman of Samaria who actually got the one who said, okay, I'm letting you know, the revelation's open, I am he. It talks about the female disciples of Jesus. And we, if you want to listen to this in Sarah's talk, absolutely brilliant talk about this literary technique that the writers of the gospel used called inclusio, which basically included them when it says somebody by name or a group of people by name and then included them in, with somebody else to say that they were part of it. So it often, you read it time and time again. Once your eyes are open, you never stop seeing. He says... Mary and the other disciples, the women and the other disciples, and it's including them with the other disciples. And it's not talking about the 12, which were a unique bunch of disciples, but like the 72. And we might think, oh, the 72 were men. No, there were men and women in that group. Cleopas is walking down, they're called the disciples on the Damascus Road, walking down Damascus Road, Jesus reveals himself to them after the resurrection. Well, who were those disciples? When you just see it from a male point of view, you just presume it's men, because it says it's disciples. No, husband and wife. Cleopas has a wife. We know that in the scripture. It says Cleopas's wife. Who was Cleopas walking home with? And who, did he, who was he going into his home with late at night? And who did he say, well, come and hang out with us to the person on the road? The high probability was that it was his wife and they were called disciples. And we see this term inclusio, the women and the other disciples. It's to connect them that they are part of the discipleship band, not the 12, but the wider disciples who actually became the missionaries of Jesus in the New Testament church. First message of the resurrection was actually delivered to a woman. It was the women who discovered that Jesus was written, uh, risen first from an angel. And then Jesus commits to the mouth of, uh, <laughs> of, the, of a woman the gospel, the most radical, life-changing message in the whole of the earth, the gospel. He commits it to a mouth of the woman and says, go and tell Peter, I'm risen. And that was in the context that in the Jewish culture, women weren't even allowed to testify in court because they didn't have any credibility at all, and a woman's testimony was not counted valid. No wonder they didn't listen to them or believe them. But Jesus, in these things, was radically 
sowing seeds, mustard seeds of the kingdom that over the course of the time would grow and become unpacked that we would see the radical nature of what he's done. Us looking back don't see them as radical actually, but in the time people were going up in arms over the way he was acting and treating women. Then it says the Holy Spirit was given. Jesus says to his disciples, I will send you the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. Remember, women weren't allowed to be witnesses. And in the upper room, when the Holy Spirit was about to come, it says this. All the disciples and names are in the upper room. And it says, with the women, Mary's mother and and Jesus' brothers. And that upper room, when the Holy Spirit came, that they would be given power to be my witnesses. That's the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not just to sanctify us and reveal Jesus to us and help us pray and have a lovely feeling and fall in love with God more. The, 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 the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses. And there's women in the room receiving the power to be the witnesses. Oh, but women aren't allowed to be witnesses. Now, but Jesus changing all that. Context of the Bible, context of Jesus' ministry. Now, context of Paul. Paul had many female leaders in his team. Go through it. He had a lot of female leaders in his team. It talks about somebody from Chloe's house in Corinth. The church was split up into house churches. Most of the churches weren't churches we know. They're, they're house churches of maybe 15, 30 people. And it says, oh, somebody from Chloe's house, the house of Chloe. This is where the church was. There's report, there's division in the church. Priscilla. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila were on Paul's team. He says, Priscilla and Aquila went to prison with Paul. And throughout the scriptures, Priscilla's name is put first more than Aquila, who is the man. And it says that Priscilla taught Apollos, who became one of the leading figures in the New Testament church, who was an outstanding teacher. It says, how did he become a really outstanding teacher? It says Priscilla took Apollos aside and taught him the teachings of Jesus more accurately. Well, that's a problem since she's on Paul's team and he's just forbidden women to teach. Greet Antichrist and Junior, right? Junior is a female name. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding amongst the apostles. This female apostles now. <laughs> so here's the context of the Old Testament, the context of Jesus. And then, then, then whilst Paul's letters are not theological textbooks, since they are letters, we can glean Paul's theology from it. And he says, there's neither neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ. Do you see that? All one in Christ. That's a quality of status in the kingdom of God. And male and female is now not a basis in which we have our function a respect or dignity? Am I communicating? So, when we read Paul's letters that seems to forbid women to teach or exercise authority in the church, in the light of the context of the whole scriptures, we should at least be thinking, 
mm, I can't take this on face value. So very quickly, I'm going to unpack this real, real quick and then send you home. Is that okay? Thank you. <laughs> Let women learn. All right, I, 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 I save time. Let's look at the context. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's put that Timothy in charge of the church of Ephesus to sort a few things out. That's the context. Um, there's a lot of diversity in Ephesus, and that's why Paul also wrote the Ephesians church. It talks about unity, 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 and inclus- inclusiveness, and we're all one in Christ, and dividing walls of hostility all gone down. And that is the basic thrust of the Ephesus church. It's, it's about dealing with these fractions and bringing them together as one in Christ. There's two groups of people in the Ephesus church. There were Hellenistic Jews. That has been Jews that lived in the Grecian world but um, are Jews, living their own culture, Jewish culture within that Greek world, Hellenistic Jews. And then there is Greek Greek Christians. So you've got Hellenistic Jews who become Christians and Greek Christians who have been converted, Gentiles. And now they're all in the same church. And their cultures are a million miles apart. So in the Jewish culture, a woman wasn't allowed to, had no dignity, no rights, no respect, and wasn't even allowed to pick up the Torah, let alone learn it. And uh, very often, a, a Jew would pray this prayer, particularly on a, on a morning. He would say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a dog, a Gentile, or a woman, because women had no status and no value. They were basically dehumanized. They were like treated for their, a male Jew treated back then as for their own service. It was, it was basically, yeah, it wasn't great. Then, on contrary to this, you had <laughs> Greek Christians, women and men, who had been converted to Christ. But Ephesus was an incredibly female-dominated culture. The mythology, it was founded on um, Amazon uh, 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 women, uh, Amazonian women warriors, and the, the, the god that they worshipped was Diana or Artemis, which was a female god, and their whole cult and culture was around this worship of God, and they had their like, male slaves and male alls going on within this cult, and there were very, very powerful women who owned businesses, and they were strong in politics, they were strong in social life, civic life, and in business life, and they were very, very powerful women, and typically, because of the culture, they would treat their, their male slaves in a very, very abusive and domineering and um, destructive way. And that was the culture that we're dealing with. And when Paul says, I forbid women, it says to the women in the same, te- in the same uh, verses, uh, don't braid your hair and don't wear pearls. Well, what's all that about? I mean, in other words, don't wear jewelry and don't get your hair done. It's because the women would wear these, these big necklaces and jewelry and braid their hair and do their hairdos, and they were basically power dressing. It was a kind of power dressing in the culture, and it was a part of their status, the Blue Suit Brigade. And so when he's saying, you know, leave the pearls and, and the the stuff with the hair, he wasn't saying you can't have a hairdo and braid your hair and you can't wear jewellery. If that's the case, all take your jewelries and your, earring, your earrings off now and, and let your hair go, go long and don't get it styled. I mean, really, that's, that's where we're going on that. 
But he's not saying that. He says, no, don't power dress, because that, they were posturing all the time for power, and they had households of slaves, and they basically did treat them like animals. So you've got these two contexts. And Paul is addressing the challenging culture to bring unity and everything under the kingdom of God. And he says, firstly, address the Jews. And he says, let women learn. It's the command mood. This is not about forbidding women to teach. He kicks off with the command mood, so that is the dominant thing he wants you to understand. Let women learn. Why? Because they weren't allowed to. They weren't even allowed to touch the Torah, touch the Bible, touch the Old Testament. Let women learn. In silence... Well, what does that mean? Well, that, and full submission, that was the adopted position of somebody who was inducted to be, to sit at the feet of a rabbi to learn to become a rabbi. So we read this back, oh, women have got to be submitted and silent and say nothing. He's, He's not saying that. He's saying, I want you to have the high privilege of entering into this learning process that you may learn the word of God and actually Become a teacher yourself. And then he goes on, in the light of that, because of the culture, but I don't forbid a woman to teach her have authority over a man. Now, he's speaking to the Grecian women who were dominating men. Now, what he's saying here is this. That word, teach or have authority, is a, a particular compound phrase within the Greek that can only be understood as you put them together. Uh, one theologian has, has used this illustration to describe it. It's like using the term hit and run. You're not allowed to hit and run. It's a, you're not permitted to hit and run in our legal system. But you only understand it in the context of driving, where you hit somebody and you don't report it. But you're allowed to hit. I can hit a ball. I can hit a hammer. I can hit in boxing. You're allowed to hit. It's not illegal. I can run. I can run for the bus. I can do that. But it's, so it's not saying you can't teach. It's not saying you can't have authority. There's a particular understanding, a context of hit and run. You can only understand it in that context. But then you say to yourselves, does this make sense? Am I, am I you following me, for example, because I'm really going quick for the sake of time. This doesn't make sense, you say, because you can't teach if you don't have authority, because you're not permission to teach if you don't have authority. But if you don't have authority, how can you have authority if you can't teach? And so, so but, but you're saying you can teach, but I need to be able to teach to exercise authority. You're saying I can't teach, but I don't have authority to teach. You're not making any sense, Paul, unless you actually look at the Greek. Because there's a word there that he uses for authority. And it's the only time Paul ever uses it, and it's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament once. Normal word is exousia. This is the only time it's used, and it's the word authentic. It's the word, I don't know if it's authentic. And it's a unique word that it basically says, uh, the word is to, is to strike, hit out, wound, kill, murder. And it was the misuse of authority that was a typical expression of the Grecian women in Ephesus. And it's the only time he ever used it. So he's saying, I want women to learn, to enter into the schooling program where they may become teachers themselves. By the way, I don't forbid anybody to teach in an abusive, domineering manner, which is the way that you are acting within your Grecian culture. That's not right. It's not right for any leader, but he was addressing it. That's why he wrote the book, to address these issues and bring unity under Christ and his kingdom. So then he goes on 
to explain, he repeats, this, he repeats the phrase and says, but women learn. Let them learn in this submitted way, the way they're invited into this learning journey. When I say submitted, it's like it's, a, it's, it's um, with reverence. Let women learn. And he repeats it. And then he gives the reason why women must learn. And then he says this, for Eve was deceived. For Eve was deceived. Because learning is the antidote to deception. We don't want that happening again. Now, when we only look at it from a male-dominated Western view, and I have heard this, by the way, (laughs) oh, women aren't allowed to learn because there's something that's spongy in their brains that makes them open to to deception like Eve. And since Eve, there's something fundamentally incorrect about. So that's why men must only do the teaching and they're not allowed to be loosed on their own because they're open to deception. We'll all get led astray. Well, first of all, if that is true, we're all hypocrites because I've noticed there's a number of women, and thankfully men have gone out, to teach the children today um, the boys are going to be all right, the ones that are taught by the guys. But unfortunately, your children are going to be deceived over the course of time, if we really believe that. It makes hypocrites of us all. Absolutely. We men who can't be deceived are very happy for them to teach the little children who can be. Do you, am I communicating? Yeah. But it doesn't actually say that. Basically what Paul is saying, so I'll paraphrase it for the sake of time and let you go home. Jewish women, you haven't allowed to let them learn. Under Christ now, there's an equality and there is no ceiling. You must let women learn. I don't want you to teach in keeping with your culture and custom of the time where you're dominating, abusive, and wounding, and damaging, and disrespectful towards men because that is a predominant feature of the Greek culture and everything must come under kingdom culture. All culture submits to kingdom culture. So let women learn. Don't abuse when you teach, when you get into leadership. But do let women learn, because Eve was deceived, and we don't want that happening again. We all want to grow up. And that's why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, just going back to Ephesians, where this is cited, he says, God has given apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, may equip for the saints the work of the ministry, that we may all grow, not sway by every towing and throwing of doctrine or wind of doctrine. So learning helps us not be swayed or deceived. So for goodness sake, let women learn. And when they grow, so they can teach, let's do it in a manner which is keeping with Christ and his kingdom and not the culture of the Greek culture of the day. And if we don't see it in that, if we insist on just taking it literally as we read it and importing it into a Western worldview and exporting our Western and 21st century worldview into this first century context, we'll have to accept the fact that women can only be saved by having children. Which, again, as you look at the context of the whole scripture, doesn't add up at all because through grace and faith in the work of Christ alone. So that's why we need to give dignity to all people, respect all people, and rule in the image of God as men and women, shoulder to shoulder, and get the job done. Thank you for listening so well. <laughs>